Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dan Jones, historian, TV presenter, and an author. Dan took a break from walking around Great British castles to write a book about the thousand years of the Middle Ages, knights and Templars and monks and Mongols and barbarians and stuff. Uh, and I thought this was going to be a in-depth historical treatise thing about the Middle Ages and medieval times and, and peasants and that. Uh, turns out that Dan is actually really funny and we got distracted talking almost exclusively not about history. Uh, so today, expect to learn why Genghis Khan was harder than Jocko Willink, Dan's best ever finish in Peloton, why I won't be allowed to go as a wizard to his imaginary fancy dress party, uh, just how bad the pandemic in the Middle Ages was, why Rome got wrecked by climate change, and much more. There isn't really any higher praise that I could give Dan than allowing him to take up one of the coveted less than a hundred following spots on my Twitter. So that's uh, the highest accolade I can bestow on him. Uh, so yeah, you get to hear today our burgeoning bromance develop, and we're now going to be on each other's whoop teams and maybe cook each other dinner at some point. I don't know. His wife might not agree with that. Whatever. Anyway. In other news, this episode is brought to you by MyProtein. If you are needing a new protein powder, the first place to go is MyProtein's Clear Way. It looks and tastes like juice. If you have been having digestive discomfort or feeling a bit bloated and upset after you have your usual shake, this is the place to go. They even do a vegan version, so if you are living that vegan life, you can go and enjoy it as well. They've got awesome flavors like orange and mango and pineapple and apple and raspberry and cranberry. It's so light that you can have it during a workout and it's got as much protein as a normal protein shake. Also, they're gooey cookies, 30 seconds in the microwave, bit of Greek yogurt on top of it, and you've got more protein than a chicken breast in like this beautiful gooey chocolatey dessert thing, which you don't feel guilty about. You can see all the products that I use and recommend, including my favorite treats and accessories, by going to bit.ly slash modernwisdom. And the code modernwisdom, if you go through that link, code modernwisdom at checkout, gets you the maximum discount that you can get. So if there's super secret sales on or a particular combination of products, it will always get you the biggest saving that you can. bit.ly slash modernwisdom and modernwisdom at checkout for 37% or greater off everything site-wide. Clearway and gooey cookies will change your life. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Manscaped. They have just released the brand new Lawnmower 4.0, their fourth generation trimmer featuring a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin-safe technology. You cannot, as a guy, use an old face shaver for your gentleman's area trim, your whatever, bi-monthly, no, that would be twice per month, that would be insane, that would mean that you were incredibly hairy, whatever, every couple of months when you need to do your gentleman's area trim, you can't use an old face shaver, you need a purpose-built tool for the job, and Manscaped have made the best trimmer I've ever found, there's an LED light which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trim, a 90-minute battery so you can take a longer shave, waterproof technology, which allows you to groom in the shower, and it's even got a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology, so if you want to do it while everyone's asleep and you can wake up in the morning and be all silky smooth, you can do that as well. You can also trim through additional guard lengths from sizes one to four. I think that's maybe millimeters. If it was centimeters, four centimeters would be insane. Anyway, you can get 20% off everything, including the Lawnmower 4.0, plus free shipping worldwide, 
with the code Modern Wisdom. Just go to manscaped.com, the code Modern Wisdom at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping. It's a great gift for the man in your life, even if that man in your life is you, or if the man in your life is too hairy. Just give him a little hint. Manscaped.com and Modern Wisdom at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. But now it's time for my new best friend, Dan Jones. Dan Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Do you ever think about how much time people that are really, really stoned have spent watching you walk around Great British Castles? I haven't like broken it down into, um, I like segmented it according to intoxicants. I mean, I'm aware dimly that there's like a weird number of people not just in the UK where I live, but worldwide who've watched Secrets of Great British Castles. Um, I hadn't given much thought to like to, to it as a stoner thing. Are you going to tell me otherwise? I think you'd be surprised. I have a burgeoning group of students that work for me, many of whom I know their go-to program, if they're blazed <laughs> out of their mind, is to get Secrets of Great British Castles on. Wow. That's... That's pretty weird. That does weird me outside. I mean, it doesn't. I'm not not in a bad way, but um, that would that would definitely ruin my buzz. I think it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Uh, so I I don't. I'm sort of out of touch with my um with my blaze mind. But I th- well, of course, it would naturally it would freak me out. Yeah. Well, I think you'd be surprised. I, I can't, I can't man. give you. I can't give you a um like an objective view on this soft sultry tones no fast movements no there was a lot there was good camera work yep good color paletting nice nice presets nice LUTs on it i reckon yeah i reckon lean into it for the next one find the most psychedelic castle that you can i love your optimism we'll ever get another series of that show it's been a long time now you know i made that show back in 20 when did we did the first series i think that was like 2013 14 15 that kind of time we did that and and that's now getting to be a while ago like i think i might have been in my now i can't have been in my 20s when i started it but i was only just out of them yeah and now i'm 40 shit yeah i and like and i sort of do i think if my if if and when because let's be honest it's always a when in tv my my career just like hits the wall of the tunnel and crumples uh, and all that's left is my back catalog um it'll be there'll be a point at which people stop recognizing me in the street and going oh my god oh my god you're a castle guy and start being like huh, that old dude there looks with like, like long gray hair at the side but none at the top shambling around smelling of his own urine that looks like an old version of the castle. Dude. It can't be. That's how I. See he really it. looked after himself. He was so youthful and sprightly. And look at him now, clean shaven, yeah. serious at the right moments. Are you, is he fighting a pigeon away. over there? Is that his pigeon? Is that somebody else's? Yeah, we should help that guy. No, no, he probably smells like that's. 
that's my future. Well, if I can see that as your, your trajectory, man, I think. And then the stoners will still love you because for them, no time has elapsed at all. Well, that, but then the hope in this, in this narrative is then it's like the redemption is the very, very late phase kind of hipster revival. Yeah. And I clean up a bit and get a haircut. Got to find that one, same leather jacket one more again. Show. Yeah, really like squeezing into that. Actually, <laughs> not squeezing into it because I'm so thin and scrawny from malnutrition. <laughs> it's just hanging loose over me like a Guy Fawkes dummy or a scarecrow. New book is about the Middle oh, yeah, Ages. Sorry. Hey, hey, guys. Yeah, let's forget. Well, it's good at the moment. Yeah. Check it out. We haven't lost it yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, new book, Middle Ages. What's so good about the Middle Ages? Why is it so special? Well, it's special to me. Uh, I've, you know, I spent my whole career to date more or less in the Middle Ages. I mean, I, I, when I was a student, I was studying medieval legal history. And then I've written 10 books, and eight of them have been about the Middle Ages, including this one, Powers and Thrones. So, um, I, you know, so this is a personal reason. I've just spent a lot of time there. I like it. I think, I think it's, a, it's a nice, like, if you're sort of choosing from the menu of historical periods to delve into it's got a nice sort of combination of the vaguely familiar and totally weird if that makes any sense so there's i think there's um there's times in history where you can or periods in history where it it just feels a little like journalism you know if we talk about the the wars of of the 20th century you know some of us and my grandparents were all to some degree or other involved in uh, the Second World War. Uh, so, like, that doesn't feel, that feels normal. That feels like, oh, yeah, that's just us with flat caps on or whatever. Tin helmets, whatever. Uh, you go, but you go back, like, way back to, I'd say, the Bronze Age. If you ever read the, that Mary Renault book, The King is Dead, have you read that? No. Uh, it's, a, it's a great, I mean, Mary Renault was a great, um, historical fiction author a fantastic novelist and she wrote a book called the king is dead which is about uh, theseus and the minotaur and it's for me the most or sort of not authentic we don't know but most believable rendition of what bronze age athens and crete were like and what the minotaur could or could not have been um and it's it sets up that world as almost completely alien. It's like you've just gone to a different planet. There's almost nothing that connects us with those primates that were also Homo sapiens. Now, the Middle Ages sits between those two things, the totally alien and the totally familiar. And at, at one turn, you can be um, be touched deeply and immediately by what seems to be a sort of human constant between us and them. And and then you turn a corner and it's like, wow, that's totally crazy. You guys thought what? So um, that's why I like it. That's what, and, uh, and it's also a repository of amazing stories. I've spent a lot of time writing British history and Plantagenet dynastic history. And of course, the, you know, from Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine through to uh, you know, the, the wars, Edward I wars for Britain or the Hundred Years' War, or Wars of the Roses, whatever, whatever. That's all. Those are all great stories that are part of a national story, our national history, the canon of our national history. Um, quite old-fashioned, but still exciting. Um, but you know, you throw the the lens open to a book like Powers and Thrones, which you know I've, I've tried to go as broad as possible, and you've just got 
like the greatest hits, some of the greatest hits of history reside in this particular period. It's like if you were going to do a, a history of popular music, you, you'd be spending on, like a lot, a lot of time between the 50s and the 70s, right? <laughs> and the Middle Ages is a bit like that. Like a lot of the good tunes are in the Middle Ages. And it's there's a lot of analogies there. It's bookended between two Roman sackings as well. That was quite cool to find out that the Middle Ages is parentheses by Rome getting fucked twice. Well, the commission, but the, the, there was a very concise commission for this book. Twenty nineteen, I think. I think it was twenty nineteen. I went to Cliveden to a literary festival and my publisher, Anthony Cheatham, to whom this book is dedicated, was there. And Anthony is, uh, is a great man and a great publisher and a dear friend of mine. And he, but he gets to the point. And uh, he said, history of the Middle Ages. I mean, that, that was how the conversation started. Hi, Anthony, how are you? I'm good. History of the Middle Ages. Sack of Rome to Sack of Rome. Want to do it? I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, good. And then they drew the contracts. Like that, that's how our commissioning process has worked in, in the past. Uh, so the only like information I had to go on to begin with was, well, here, here are some bookends. You do, you do the, the bit in the middle. But that's why he's a great publisher, because he sees things in these enormous broad strokes and the, the pillars of the story, and then, you, you know, go away and build it. It, it. He's visionary, and I don't use that term lightly. But it's easy. It's for all that he might be visionary, giving someone a thousand years of history to try and put into a book when you don't have to go and do the research yourself, that is, it's laying out the battle plans, but not having to uh, sort of step foot in the mud quite so much. Yeah, he's a great general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Directing he around. Purposes. All right, so... No, be- look, I, I, I love that. I love that. That's the challenge. I don't, like, I don't take well to micromanagement. You give me... A task, I will perform it, and I will usually, although not always, but usually give you a good result. Uh, but don't come micromanaging me. Leave it to me. I know best. So that's my working at. That's my basic working attitude. Um, and and so we gel quite well. It's a great idea. I I do it, and he doesn't mess with me. And give him a good book, and then he sells it. And so then a book that's, arrives. That's, like, that's a great way to work. That's a boss. Most people's bosses, they're not like that. Most people's bosses. They're, there's that Bill Hicks sketch about the boss. Do you, remember, do you ever listen to Bill Hicks? Yeah, but not this one. He just He's just talking why he likes being a stand-up comedian. And he goes, the only thing, really, he likes about being a stand-up comedian because he just whinges about the, the long days on the road and the bro- failed relationships and all that stuff. And he goes, but the thing about being a stand-up comedian is you don't have a boss. And uh, the same is true about being a popular or a you know, trade historian. With a, boss. with a good publisher. With a good publisher. You have a boss. Who wants a boss? I don't want a boss. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, <laughs> don't. You, don't. you don't have to worry about it. All right, so the begin. The begin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beginning. Let's get to the beginning, right? Why, does, why is Rome fucked? Why, why, why is that wrecked? Well, Gibbon took six volumes to get get to the bottom of this, didn't he? But let's let's try it quickly. Um, the, there are lots of reasons why the Roman Empire in the West fell in the fifth century. 
In Powers and Thrones, I start at the very beginning and uh, start with a, a cyclical shift in the climate of the Mediterranean world. After the Roman climate optimum, a period of relatively warm, re relatively wet weather, highly conducive to agriculture, um, highly conducive to an empire feeding itself. After that entered a sort of cyclical downturn of slightly cooler, slightly drier uh, regional climate. Um, and Rome came under, so that's the sort of, that's the climate framing. And then Rome comes under enormous pressure from waves of migrants, waves set in chain by a, a short, sharp mega drought uh, in the Far East, which moved tribes called the Huns. Huns bumped into the Goths and the Alans. Uh, Alan, uh, the Goths and the Alans, particularly the Goths, found their way towards the borders of the, Ro of the Roman Empire in both East uh, and eventually West. Um, put enormous pressure on a political system that was already uh, faltering because of problems, some of which were related to simple size. The Roman Empire was, was too massive to be, uh, it, it was like a very unstable, very large star. You know, they, 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 they start to become unstable under the, the pressure of their own mass and gravity. And so that that had been a sort of long-term process within the Roman Empire. So there's a sort of combination of factors which, by the beginning of the fifth century, lead to uh, a sort of breaking up process of the Western Roman Empire. And then in 410, the symbolic sacking of Rome, um, not just symbolic, I mean damaging and and uh, uh, and shocking, but most of all symbolic, sacking of Rome by Alaric and, and the Goths. And that didn't herald the immediate end of the Roman Empire or even the immediate end of the Roman Empire in the West. But it, it was a sort of, I mean, the, the crass modern analogy is with 9-11. It was a sort of, it, even at the time, it seemed like a sea change kind of moment, which seemed to herald a new phase in history. And in retrospect, uh, has, be, has retained that, um, that reputation. All right. So Rome's fucked. Why was it that for the rest of time no one appears to have been able to replicate a empire of their sort of size i guess the british tried to do it but we're outside of the middle ages then was there something just inherently unstable about our area of the world oh so you mean an empire in europe or an empire yeah, in the world in an empire in europe napoleon would have something to say was that equivalent sizing to the Roman Empire. Napoleon and Charlemagne. Okay, no, so look, the, the Romans are the only imperial power to have ruled the entire coastal littoral of the Mediterranean. So we'll give them that. Um, uh, which is hard to do. Just hard to do. I mean, that's like, Napoleon would, would probably have liked Why is it hard to do? Well, because it's a vast uh, area in the just in the first instance. Although, yes, of course, the British have, have commanded a great empire. The Mongols commanded an enormous land empire in the, in the Middle Ages. And uh, the Arabs, uh, you know, the first Islamic caliphate probably came the closest to emulating Rome. Um, but the Roman imperial system was, uh, was, was uniquely um, effective for its time. And you had a sort of perfect combination of overwhelming um, 
by an order of magnitude military capability. A sort of analogous to the modern United States, but sort of much, much greater than the modern United States in comparison to every other power, certainly in their region. You had in the sort of peak of the imperial um, age a a highly effective um, sort of uh, and uh, replicable political system with a with uh, what well, I think was very very important about it was um, a a pan Roman culture a culture that went beyond sort of regional culture. Um, so that Romans living in villas in Britannia would feel something in common with Romans living in a villa in uh, North Africa or Sicily or Rome. So, so, you know, so you have a common language. You have, of course, the famous roads. Um, you have the, the concept of citizenship, although, of course, not unique to the Roman Empire, but which uh, which binds a sort of ruling class together uh, by self-interest as much as anything else. You have a sophisticated um, uh, body of law. You know, you did all, all of these ingredients of the Roman Empire come together. Over, they're built up over a long time, uh, and it's it's hard to, to attribute their success to one of those things on its own. But in the time since Rome's fall, it's proven difficult, well, it's proven impossible uh, for any number of generations for, for another power to put together that sort of unique combination of building blocks of empire. I mean, look, people try, in the Middle Ages, who came closest? Well, I think the... As I've said already, the um, you know the Umayyad Caliphate up till the middle of the eighth century. Um, I think you know Charlemagne gave it a good go. Uh, although you know that the problem with um, with Charlemagne's empire was that it, it was like Napoleon's, which I've also mentioned, highly dependent on one charismatic and uh a visionary individual at the the head of it should have got, your, should have got your publisher yeah like he'd be a great um he'd, he'd be he's an empire builder should have got him in well he wasn't around should have fixed it should have worked it out somehow okay i'll ask bill and ted should have got some sort of a solution got him in could have published some great books and held on to an empire for a bit longer it would have been a tyrannical empire, but then that is uh, uh, the most effective. But you said he just lets everyone get on with their own thing. It would have been fine. Uh, he lets me get on. I didn't say he lets everyone get on with their own thing. Okay. He get on with my- He's able to give sovereignty to those who deserve it. Right. Okay. That's a good leadership principle. Yeah, I like it. Think Jocko Willink. Exactly. Yeah. Extreme ownership, but only for the people Jocko. that deserve it. Only right. for the people that deserve it. Not for you. Jocko doesn't come with a lot of caveats, does he? No, fairly simple. Him and Goggins, fairly simple. Right down the back of a post-it note. Which Goggins? Walton Goggins. David Goggins. I don't know about that. I only know about Walton Goggins. David Goggins is like a hardcore, black, thinner Jocko out of the Marines. 
So he's a Marine and then he's done ultra races and he goes on Rogan and he swears a lot and he says, stay hard. And that's good advice. And that's what he does. Yes. You can't hold that advice. <laughs> no, he can't. In those situations. <laughs> but he seems to say it to every situation, actually. It's, yeah. like, it's like a one size fixes all solution to just stay hard. Um, which Jocko doesn't talk about actually. So maybe that's maybe if you were to blend the two together, you'd have someone who have a great tan, uh, they'd right. have good endurance, they'd be a Brazilian uh, jiu-jitsu black belt. They all do jiu-jitsu. Do you do jiu-jitsu? No, I don't. And I don't think that David Goggins does, but he does tie his hands behind his back and his feet together and get dropped into water quite a lot because he's got he's got a fear of water. So he overcomes his fear of water by being hogtied and thrown in. Um, there's a there's a sort of historical tradition going on. I I know it's like new because the the broadcasting medium is new, but that kind of goes like that definitely goes back to Houdini, doesn't it? Mm. Like super physically hard, are going to do some ridiculous stunt that's going to you know scare the shit out of you if you empathise for one second. <laughs> you know, if David Blaine had come along, like. 15 20 years later that dude would have he'd have been a jocko or whatever i think you reckon yeah i think so i think he's a bit mindful for that i think he's a bit sort of complex not that jocko and goggins are simple humans oh no oh no but yeah just in case they're listening because he'll fuck me up um but i do think that they're from what i know of david blaine he seems like a pretty fairly sort of complex character. I'm not sure that yeah. you can come up with stay hard if you are if you're as complex as David Blaine. I think that Yeah, needs... no, you're right. You know what Blaine should have been? If Blaine came along now, I know what he'd be. What? He'd be a Peloton instructor. He would be a Peloton instructor. Like the soulfulness plus the physical. You love your Peloton, action. don't you? Do I ever? Set a personal best this morning. Came second though. Was it was it today? Second. Yeah, but you know, like, do you ride Peloton? No. Okay, let me tell you this. You go on a live ride, let's say it's a 30-minute Hitton Hills ride, just say. doesn't have to be, but let's say it is. You're going to know within the first three minutes, like, if there's, there's going to be a couple of people, like, if they're there, they're there. You just know you're not going to keep up with those people. They're, they're like they must i think they're probably professional riders or they're certainly like those skinny 50 year old dudes you see out for doing 100 miles every sunday riding from london to brighton and stuff um but i'm not that dude uh what do like, you i'm elite dabbler like the king of the dabblers so i'm not, i'm not a pro i'm not going to be a pro but uh I'm I'm usually I'm there or thereabouts. I'm top ten. I'm low you, top ten usually. Get, but I'll go around number two today. Who do you get pipped by today? Some bastard. Oh no, just some dude. I don't even know. I can't like his name was I don't know. Andy Spin thirty six or some shit. Yeah. I don't know. Eat my dust, Dan Jones. That's who no, we need. Ride. That's who we need to. But I was racing. There was racing. There was a, a woman I was racing for number three position. That was a good race, uh, and I had a, a personal best. I'm very, I'm very pro peloton, and I tell you why. Not, not just for the um, the physical fitness aspect, although that is superb, and they've got great trainers, and like 
you get you're going to do well if you if you train peloton but i like the cod philosophy i buy into that west coast kind of um selfish hippie thing i don't i don't believe it per se like i am aware that this is like a lot of gobbledygook but i also buy into it in the moment and i think that like i think that's how cults work i don't think that all of manson's family were like well yeah i'm, I'm very pro this like I, not i don't think they're unquestioning like that's like you know the dudes with koresh i don't think they were all like completely brain i don't think cults are all completely brainwashing they're full of people who are like why do i believe this shit? i don't know but i do there's nothing to do with the Middle Ages. But Peloton's a cult. I spoke to Danny Trejo, you know, the guy from Conair. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now we're name dropping. Yeah. Fucking... Tell me more. Well, <laughs> let me tell you about Danny Trejo. Uh, he was hypnotized by Charles Manson in county jail. Of course he was. So yeah. Char- Charles Manson was in there and he was a little guy, little Charlie, yeah. he called him. Yeah. And Charlie was getting picked on by the bigger guys, but someone had told Danny... That, Char- yeah. that Charlie could hypnotize you to get you loaded up on heroin. So he could hypnotize you so that it was like that you were high on heroin again. So they started looking after him because he was able to psychologically deploy drugs to them. And apparently it was just like being on heroin. So he got hypnotized into believing that he was loaded in the, in the prison and looked after Charles Manson for a while. It's a pretty good story. Pretty fucking good. Another story about Danny Trejo. He once yeah. he once saved Kiefer Sutherland from a stalker. So Kiefer Sutherland, guy from Twenty Four, had yeah. this bodyguard dude. Apparently, people in Hollywood like being around tough men that are just part of their posse or whatever. And True. this this guy had started misbehaving and then had started threatening Kiefer. Uh, so Danny said Danny told Kiefer that he was gonna sort it. Um, which, in Kiefer's defense, I would have thought meant get him killed as well, whack him. Uh, didn't mean yeah. that, just meant like I'll, it'll be sorted. I'll it. it'll be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it'll be sorted. But it's Danny Trejo. Like he's a pretty intimidating fellow with a big tattoo. So, uh, but he went away sure. and he, he, he sent this dude after Danny and his friend paid him a visit. Uh, he sent Kiefer's wife and Kiefer a bouquet of flowers and a handwritten note apologizing and saying that he hopes they have a good life. So, useful friend to have if you're ever over in... Uh, Hollywood, useful. You've got to know Danny Trejo. Yeah, and he'll fuck people up. He's really hard. So I sat opposite Mickey Rourke in like an in the Air New Zealand lounge in LAX years ago, and yeah, you'd have thought Rourke would be intimidating. Rourke, I didn't find Mickey Rourke intimidating. I'd be intimidated if I sat opposite Danny Trejo. But he's proper fucked people up. He's hard. I'm not he's sure hard. how much Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke just looks like he's been fucked up. He does now. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, I think being hard, like as a, like, to try and make this about history. Yeah, well, we have to. You know, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I think being hard is definitely historically that's a historical moving factor that we don't think about a lot. What do you mean? I mean, you know, when you know someone who's hard, they're diff- They're just like they're different. Like Jocko's hard, right? Jocko is a hard man and I don't need to know all the shit he did in like Navy SEAL three or team three or whatever he was in to know that I'm just, I'm not going to fuck with him. I don't give out that sort of vibe. 
even no matter how like how many how like much I squatted or like pressed or whatever how big or got or like I, I'm never going to be hard no one's ever going to be like oh no that Dan Jones is hard that's not like okay some people are just I think they're just hard they're just hard that's just their vibe it's a thing they give you they're just hard and I suspect that if you met Attila the Hun right you reckon he's hard in the mid fifth century I reckon the guy's hard I think Genghis Khan is like just a just like a hard people Wait, who do you reckon's the hardest man from the middle ages or woman Genghis Khan I yeah. think it's Genghis Khan yeah I think it's Genghis or Chinggis Khan I want to get it right if I make because <laughs> he's hard I think I was thinking so uh, you know, I've been talking about this book a lot. Someone said, okay, well, come on, then why did Genghis Khan put together the greatest land, contiguous land empire seen in the Middle Ages? And like, the answer isn't just because he was hard. But, <laughs> but that, that, I went through like a whole, like, well, the structure of Mongol tribal society in the late 12th century was such and such, and there were some climate factors probably at play, and uh, you know, the relative organization of, of Genghis Khan's meritocratic uh, reorganized Mongol army versus the, uh, de, you know, the decadent imperial societies of the... Blah, 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 blah. I didn't mention the guy who must have just been like double heart. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think that's got to have been a factor. Don't you? We know how people work. One of the things I've tried to get to in, like, okay, this is all silly, but it, there is a sort of serious point. And when I was writing, I've written this big book, A Thousand Years of Medieval History, and I've tried in this more than I've tried in other books. Tried really hard to have this kind of stuff in mind. Um, really try and think clearly about, about things and try and... Um, Bring it into without. I don't. I don't dumb down. I you know, I'd sound dumb when I, I'm talking to you, obviously. But in the books, and they're not. They're not dumbed down books. This isn't simple Wikipedia, but it does have a. They do have a sensibility of. Well, what's this like in modern terms? Um, I was. I think. I think it was when I was writing about the. Uh, uh, yeah, the early, the rise of the Arabs, you know, the, the, that first generation, Muhammad's his companions, the first conquest out of Arabia. And um, the, you know, the Arabs of Muhammad's time are described as um, like the sons of Ishmael, you know, the wild ass of a man, his hand against everyone's and everyone's against his. Like that's poetic and that's, that's you know, that's biblical. Uh, it's... Um, sounds good but it, it it also as i was writing i remember writing that chapter thinking that reminds me much more of something you know what how would i explain that to somebody who didn't really dig on uh the poetry of a biblical illusion didn't really get down with a wild ass of a man as as being a great i was like this is like millwall fc right this is like millwall no one likes us we don't care now you're talking because that's the same human 
instinct that's the same human kind of like grr, basic uh, we're mean attitude. Um, and although the fortunes and the rise of Millwall FC's terrorist supporters in the late 20th and early 21st century have nothing whatsoever to do uh, beyond that uh, with the rise of the Arabs and the early Islamic caliphates, I still think it's like elementally something human that, that, that joins those two um, phenomena that one should actually point out without fear of, of you know, being a bad historian. So what you're saying is that the echoes of the Millwall Terrace reverberate yeah. through time? No, that's not what I'm saying. Oh. I'm saying Shame. that what you hear echoing on the Millwall Terrace is a, uh, a human trait as old as time. Cantankerous, aggressive. Me. Yes, there we are. Now we've <laughs> come back. Hard. Now we've come, not hard, not hard enough to to pull it off. Right. What about what about the sort of stereotype poster boy then for the Middle Ages? That's got to be knights, is it? Knights. It kind of everyone thinks Middle Ages, and they think knights. Uh, well, it's two things, isn't it? I mean, if I'm if I said to you, uh, Chris, do you fancy coming to my medieval fancy dress party? Yeah. Assuming you weren't just totally weirded out. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Middle Ages. Medieval. What's what's going on there? It's the same word but different. Yeah. Oh. One, one sort of Latinate ones. Oh. So they're just interchangeable. Yeah. Ah, oh, cool. Sweet. Except medieval is an adjective, and Middle Ages isn't. Okay. Fine. Don't worry. You can use either. There's I no will. judgment. I will. On my history peloton. Um. Knights. <sighs> So if I'm inviting you to my medieval fancy dress party, my hypothetical medieval, don't worry, I'm not having one and they're not going to invite you after the show. Okay. It's a hypothetical party. I was like, you know, you've got to come in a costume. You, I think you're coming as one of two things. You're one of three things. Like you might come as uh, like a saucy wench. You might do that. Yep. Oh, you very I can well. see, like, No, you, I can see me doing that. You could be like, I've got good ah, legs. Go. I've got good legs. Put that aside. Okay. If the wench option's off the table, I say that no wench is, okay? Uh, if the wench option is off the table, I think you're going to come as either uh, a knight or, or you know, a version of a knight, or you're going to come as a monk. Yeah, I was going to say wizard, but monk's like the real version of a wizard. Don't come as a wizard. You won't be allowed in as a wizard. <laughs> is there no wizards, no wizards or wenches? Wenches, yes, but there's no wizards. <laughs> Fuck's sake. You're going to come as a monk or a knight? Just say, yes, I am. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I thought you were. Now, you're going to come as a monk or a knight because those are the two great archetypes of the Middle Ages. You know, the the, the churchman. Now, of course, lots of different churchmen. It doesn't have to be. But let's say the monk, the churchman over here and the fighting man over here. Um, and... Uh, those are fascinating roles because to a large extent they are product of and unique to well the product of the middle ages so before the middle ages you have ascetics for sure christian ascetics desert stylites you know all of that sort of stuff but they're not monks as we think of them um and 
you in a similar way before the before the Middle Ages, actually before about the tenth century, you have warriors who fight on horseback, who or, who ride into battle and or fight on horseback. But you don't have knights in the Frankish tradition who fight with a couch lance, the cantle saddle and st- saddle and stirrups, and uh, and who have this sort of code of chivalry, which which is like bonded around everything that they do and infused within their their mindset. And so, so I think those two, I give I gave a chapter to each of those in in Powers and Thrones because I think that not only are these very very symbolic of uh and particular to the middle ages these these groups of monks and knights um i think that they're also like through examining those archetypes you can tell some really interesting stories about power now this book is called powers and thrones because one of its uh it's driving underpinning concerns is what is power in the middle ages what does it look like is it just political power is it just uh, military power is it just being hard um and what's what powers and thrones does is sort of meditates across the, the the course of the book on on the different forms power can take in human society as exemplified in the middle ages where's the power coming from fundamentally well power doesn't power it's like saying, where does energy come from? I mean, power doesn't come from anywhere, but power can't, power is uh, is manifested um, in different ways, and 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 power can take different forms. And so, in the Middle Ages, you know, we, I, I, in, in my career to date, in the books I'd written, I've, I'd written what have I done? A lot. I've done some dynastic history, so that's power as family, power as um, kingship power as political system, pretty much. I've done Templars and Crusaders. Okay, so that's that's power through um, religion, and and that's power through military force. But I was aware, having having written those books, that there were there were large areas of medieval history that I, I hadn't really written about directly. And that were important if you were trying to think about how what power is and how it's manifest. So, besides the the constitutional, the political, the military, the religious, there's also the um, the operation of the institution. So, monks is a good example of this. If you think about Cluniac monasticism, it's institutional power. It's it's non-military. It's not overtly political. It's it's sort of it, it is religious, but it's more than that. It's cultural. It's as I say, it's institutional. The, the growth of Cluniac monasticism from out of Burgundy along these um, pilgrim roads joining much of Western Europe, enriching uh, you know a system which self enriches a system which which uh, spreads its influence across borders irrespective of political rulers a system which uh, grants its institutional leaders equivalent power to political leaders without a state beneath them uh, equivalent wealth to political leaders without a state to provide it like that, that's a really interesting story it has echoes you know, or superficial as they may be, but echoes of um, things we're dealing with now uh, in terms of you know big companies like Facebook, Apple, Google, um, Amazon, how 
these stateless institutions uh, are, are bending a world and 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 they're, they're factors to, that political leaders of states have to consider so um so I think that 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 story of monks for just as an example is one that uh, that takes you not just into the sort of cloister and and the everyday humdrum reality of medieval monasticism but actually into thinking quite deeply about what power is and how it can be deployed talking about the modern day in millwall and stuff that happens now just coming out the back end of a pandemic hopefully uh a lot of pandemics in the middle ages a lot of those yeah. running it's ravage in the middle ages yeah i mean there's the, the the big ones are black death in the 14th century Near, nearly at the end though they just pipped the post you know they only had a hundred years before rome got wrecked again and then they'd have been missed yeah. off they'd have been in whatever comes after well there's an argument that says no black death uh a, a much delayed renaissance and you know the, the the counterfactual with no black death is very 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 hard to play um so i, I it's not as it can't be we can't be too certain that uh had the black death not come along you would still have seen the sack of rome in 1527 but in answer to your first question the, the big pandemics of the Middle Ages, yeah, you've got look, Black Death of, of the mid-14th century and then the waves all the way through to 1390s. And much earlier than that, in fact, 800 years earlier than that, you have the Justinianic plague, plague of Justinian. Harder, really, to be certain about its, its spread, its virulence, uh, much, more, much more reliant on impressionistic evidence. What's with that? The Justinianic plague. Well, the... The accounts of chroniclers saying, oh, my God, it was terrible. There was like mad lockdowns and thousands of people dying all the time. Um, you know, there's, there is far less. Like, I can get super nerdy. So the Justinian, Justinianic plague of the 6th century AD seems to have been similar to the Black Death in that it was a form of uh, bubonic plague uh, which mutated very 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 infectious and very 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 deadly the trouble is we know a lot about the black death and very little about the justinianic plague and a lot of what we have to surmise about the justinianic plague is surmised by taking what we know of the black death and then transposing its uh say its rate of spread and its lethality back onto the fragments of evidence we have from the sixth century so that the range of estimates of how many people so with the black death of the 14th century we know with a reasonable degree of certainty that it's uh 50 60 percent of the population of western europe are killed by the black death we can we, we can be quite certain about that although it varies from place to place we can be quite certain about that However, because of the fragmentary nature of the evidence about the 6th century Justinianic plague, you're sort of using models from the 14th century and putting them on top of very, very uh, scant evidence. And, and so the high range of estimates for deaths in the Justinianic plague, I think, runs to like 100 million. But the low range runs to about 50,000. 
Good confidence so, interval. Well, it's a problem, right? Now, if you just read the chroniclers of the from the sixth century, that tallies with this idea that it's closer to one hundred million than to fifty thousand. But the trouble is that chroniclers we we don't tend to trust chroniclers, and they tend to get a bit hot under the collar. I mean, if you only had Daily Mail and or Sun or Guardian editorials to go by as your as your historical source, you would have somewhat warped idea about the history of the current pandemic right you want some stats you want some data man give me some data give me some hard data chroniclers is that not what chroniclers are supposed to do it's kind of in the name chronicling things not pundits punditers that wasn't the name yes but, but there's so um but if you take a we 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 would call say procopius of caesarea a chronicler um, he'd fall into, under that broad term because he writes histories uh, and contemporary histories of what he's living through in the age of Justinian. But the guy is much closer to a paid-by-the-inch um, like shock columnist. Gossip, gossip. Go no, on. not gossip. I mean, a sort of a like a rented opinion. It's not quite Katie Hopkins, well, as as was before she got whacked. Or he's, he's like Piers Morgan, right? All right, yeah. What's the issue of the day? Morgan's got two takes, and he just like goes, okay, that one. Uh, and he's he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, totally amoral as a journalist. I don't know him personally. Maybe nice guy, and may not be. I don't know, but. Um, as a journalist, he's brilliant because uh, he's either compl- like completely enraging or completely sympathetic, depending on just where you stand on on this particular issue. And um, Procopius Caesar is sort of similar, very very similar to Piers Morgan. And so, if you take this is a good example of this. Procopius Caesar is is you know supposedly a chronicler. Well, he's just writing what happened, like. Morgan would say, I'm just a journalist, you know. Um, spends half his career toadying up unbelievably to Justinian, the emperor. Unbelievably. You know, the sort of flatterer, the kind of writing, the histories of the wars of Justinian and kind of blowing endless smoke up the emperor's eyes. And then he writes The Secret History, which is like uh, the most offensive damning um, tell-all, expose, character assassination, mudslinging, like horror show of an account of Justinian and Theodora, Uh, which smears them, absolutely smears them. I mean, it's it's so entertaining. It's great. But it's like a hell of a flip-flop. And people sort of scratch their heads. Oh, this is, you know, what... Going on with Procopius of Caesarea, man, just look at Piers Morgan and Megan. Okay, the dude couldn't get his nose out of her, uh, and then she kind of snubbed him, and so he becomes her worst enemy. It's an old story, it's an old story. Um, but it's you no. Know, so, so anyway, the point was is, is you know we chroniclers. No, they don't just chronicle. Of course, they they're, they're opinion Spin. formers. And they 
yeah, that was that's that's the old fashioned. You've shown your age there. The age of spin. <laughs> you grew up in the age of spin. Spinny Hendrix. It's because I love the yeah. thick of it. That's why. Uh, what about technology? There's like the dark ages are completely encompassed by this Middle Ages period. What about technology? Because it feels, I don't know, this is me talking as the guy that doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about most of the time, but specifically when it comes to the history of the planet that I live on. And I don't see, it feels like Rome had a lot sorted. And then you come out the other side at the Renaissance and we've got, what have we got to show for it? Like some art some castles which you have profited from massively and don't presume (laughs) and some death some plagues like there's no one adventuring or technologying during this period what's happening well there's no doubt that the roman empire had um achieved a sort of technological spike in the graph if you like um very inventive and ingenious uh age underpinned of course by uh, mass slavery and one of the reasons that uh, certain societies have been able to build fast and high and impressive and large is because they've enslaved uh tens of that you know ancient egyptian aliens aliens like the egyptians enslaved yes Yes, yes, of course. I've forgotten about that. Um, so, but you know, there's no, there's no doubt. So, after the breakup of the Roman Empire in the West, there's no doubt that you see all sorts of networks broken uh, over what used to be the Western Roman Empire. Some of those are knowledge networks, and some of those are technological exchange networks, and some of those just are wealth networks. So it takes a long time for certainly Western Europe, and I'm, I'm, I'm being quite specific about Western Europe, to recover uh, to a point of, of similar technological sophistication. But it doesn't take as long as you're suggesting. When do you think so, that is? When do they get back well, to a... I mean, whether it's, it's about getting back to par, but getting back to a um, a society that is... Uh, becoming that is every generation seems to be becoming wealthier and more creative and more inventive and more um, thirsty for knowledge and more capable of deploying that knowledge to useful ends. It's around the millennium that you you start to see technology, new technology, starting to transform the way that people live. Let's let's take a, uh, one small example. We talked earlier. Uh, we didn't really talk earlier. We mentioned earlier knights. If you take the stirrup um, and the arrival, the importation of stirrup technology from east to west. When 8th century, maybe 9th century, 10th century, sometime like this, it takes a while to to arrive and and to spread. But certainly by the millennium, the stirrup, people are riding the stirrups. By the 12th century, it's just part of riding. In fact, you couldn't have knights without stirrups because you couldn't, if you think about... um, trying to joust on horseback if if you're given a lance you're going to need a couple of things on the horse you're going to need a saddle right and you're going to need stirrups because otherwise if you ride that horse at something and try and jab over that lance what's going to happen is the horse will go that way and you will go that way 
and it will be comical till you break your pelvis on your fall. <laughs> it will still be comical, but not for you. Uh, so the, the, the invention of the stirrup enables a, a, a military revolution because it enables the development of Frankish cavalry. And Frankish cavalry, to take one example, are a, a, a central part of the success of the First Crusade. Now, the First Crusade, you could argue, is a transformative political uh, event in the history of the whole Middle Ages. But the, and the, although this sounds a bit butterfly effect, the First Crusade might not have been possible without the invention of the stirrup, which seems to us an impossibly simple piece of technology, but is, is very important. And from that point, you know, from around the 10th, 11th century, you start to see in Western Europe um, inventions, you know, windmills. Windmills sound kind of boring, but they, they, they're incredibly important for uh, the development of agriculture. Um, I see a rising population which is able to feed itself better because you have, um, uh, you know, you have improvements in plow technology. These are unglamorous things, but you know, agricultural technology improves, military technology improves. Um, so it's earlier than you think that the difference starts to be made. The astrolabe comes back into society or comes into, you know, Western society from uh, from the Greeks and the Arabs. Uh, and that makes navigation a lot easier. What about warfare? Any warfare technology developments? Well, by the 14th century, you start to see gunpowder. I mean, that's an. In, I mean, gunpowder is a sort of end of the middle, late Middle Ages, end of the Middle Ages kind of phenomenon, and we tend to associate the arrival of gunpowder on the battlefields with the end of the Middle Ages. But um, it's it's there quite early on in the again in the West, uh, uh, in 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 the late Middle Ages. So um, and then in in armor technology, yeah, look, you see armor and arms. I mean, think about. For example, Frankish swords. Frank's are extremely famous for uh, for producing high quality swords. Um, what, was so, got, what was so high quality about them? What they do? So they for stabbing with. Or did steel? Well, no, it doesn't shatter on impact. Mainly, um, capable of maintaining a sharper a sharper edge. Uh, if you think about the development in armor between, I mean, think about the Norman, close your eyes, think about the Bayeux Tapestry, as I, uh, I say to all my lovers. Um, and what are they wearing? Like male link armor. It's the colloquial term is chain mail, that's tautology, but you know, male armor. Uh, the development of that to, by the 14th century, largely plate armor enables um, heavier fighting closer at hand on foot and, and, Bigger armies are required. Longbow technology. I mean, lots of developments that seem seem quite primitive to us because we we're in a nuclear age and uh, we're post the barbed wire and machine guns of the trenches. But uh, technological and and then you mentioned navigation. Well, again, by the early 15th century, you've got boat technology and navigation technology improving to the point that you know, two generations before Columbus sailed for the uh, for the Indies and bumped into the Americas. Um, you know, Henry the Navigator, the Portuguese sending ships ever further down the West African coast uh, and coming back. It wasn't the problem; wasn't going down the coast; it was coming back. Uh, so, uh, but long before that, even if you look around the turn of the millennium to go back to sort of where I started, uh, you've got Europeans in the Americas then, but Vikings over at Lanza Meadows. 
around the year 1000. So medieval technology is, uh, is more sophisticated than perhaps we give it credit for. Mm. Yeah, it's a weird one because the way that technology works, it enables further developments to be made. So you do have this sort of exponential curve that comes in as something gets enabled, then that enables something else that goes down there. And it kind of feels like where you're leaving the story, whatever, 1500 and a bit, that there's a lot of the fundamental pieces in place to allow pirates within 300 years, to allow bigger buildings, to allow faster development, faster travel, so on and so forth, more dangerous weapons. Um, well, okay, but let's take those in, in terms. Pirates, they've always been pirates. Um, Would they have been able to travel as far across the ocean? Would they have been able to do... Depends how far. You don't need to travel very far to be a pirate. I mean, if you look at... Uh, Caribbean, um, obviously, that's where Jack Sparrow yeah, of course, is. Yeah, like you've just watched too many movies. That's that's the problem. Well, yeah, yeah, because so, you know, the, I'm the, alive. Pirates, the pirates, the pirates of the Mediterranean is a, is a story that you you could set in any bloody age, you could, really. Pirates of the Mediterranean. Um, that's what they pirates should have the, done. Yeah, it sounds like you know fighting yeah, over pasta. Disney aren't making pirates of the Mediterranean. Fighting over pasta. That's what they could have had. Okay, keep it up. Uh, what was the next thing you said that I was about to demolish? Uh, let's, big buildings. Big, big buildings. buildings. Yes. You know, with your big buildings. Lincoln Cathedral. Lincoln Cathedral. Big building? Halfway between you. Biggest building in the world, mate. For a while. It was. Bigger than the pyramid. Yeah, until the spire blew down. But that was bigger than the Great Pyramid at Giza. It's on a big hill, isn't it? And it was the... Uh, yeah, but we're not counting a hill. It's even better because it's on the top of the hill. <laughs> Put the fucking Eiffel Tower on top of a hill. Count the hill. Oh, man. The Dome of the Rock's big, isn't it? What? Well, it's on a hill. <laughs> makes it look bigger. But look, but everyone's done that. Everyone's, everyone's pulled something down around something that they're trying to make look bigger to create the illusion that the thing that they're trying to make look bigger actually is bigger. You're talking about manscaping. Uh, manscaping... <laughs> I wasn't actually aware was a specific term, although manscaped. Have you heard of portmanteau manscaping? No. Like shaving your pubes? Yeah, but I mean, I didn't know that it was like a pursuit that people went into. Is there like a subreddit for it? I don't know. There's like a Peloton class for it. You just click the button, it's next to yoga. Manscape. Yeah, manscaping. Going back to the Peloton thing, because I had that we left you yeah. left a little <laughs> bit of true. it. No, but you left don't a bit. You, there's account. an Peloton are watching. Don't take my account away. Unclosed loop about Peloton, because yeah. you have a family with what sounds like a, a small child. Did you specifically not get the treadmill because it's good at propelling infants into? Uh, did you uh, see well, this? Do you see firstly, this? The tre- firstly, the tread plus has only just been released in the UK. Uh, yeah, I'm aware of the uh, of the problems with the treadmills are dangerous. I mean, no, it's not just, and, and I'm not like a Peloton either ambassador, oh, I wish I were, or evangelist. I kind of am. But treadmills are dangerous. Treadmills have been dangerous. They've always been dangerous. Poor old Mike Tyson's daughter died in a treadmill, didn't she? Didn't know that. Nice very, fact. very, very dangerous. People with kids, don't let your fucking kids near your treadmill. Do not do it. They're really dangerous. No, I don't go to treadmill. Also, I don't, I'm not really a runner. Um. Uh, no. Yes, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have. To, and then also, I've I've had it since 
um, February. I built a gym in lockdown. It went in earlier in the year. But no, I didn't choose a bike ride in the train for that reason. I chose a bike because at the time it was the only piece of equipment available, but it's the piece of equipment I would have chosen anyway. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How fortunate. Well, the Tread Plus, if they'd had that in the middle of I wouldn't ages. have chosen that. I, I'm just not a runner. I'm just not a runner. And small child that can be fired underneath you, your treadmill. I just think I just think if you've got a kid, if you just just cycle for a bit for the the years that your child can't avoid a treadmill. That seems run like on the road. Run outside. I don't know. Yeah. Like to each their own, man. Uh it's hard enough to get people to get off their asses. Right. Mm. But like I just think like it's like if you've got a cooker, well you're gonna let the kid crawl in the fucking oven. No, of course you're not, because you know that thing is dangerous. Don't juggle the knives. No, I know they're dangerous. A treadmill is dangerous. It's a dangerous piece of equipment. Yeah. Don't yeah. let your kids play on it. And now Peloton. I get pisses me off when Pe- I think about people who let their kids play on their treadmill. Peloton's Why have you done that? Like, I'm, all, I'm, all, like, I'm all worked up now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. Look, I'll let you. How about something nice? How about something nice? Someone from your research for the book yeah. that, that you think more people should know about. Dick Some... Whittington, for a start. Dick Whittington. Dick Whittington, for a start. Right. All I know, all I know about Dick Whittington is I've I seen know. many harsh monogram images of him wearing high boots and a big floppy hat. That is the beginning and the end of my understanding about Dick Whittington. Did he do something with a cat? Did he ever? In real life, no. And so the pantomime character Dick Whittington, knapsack on his back, cat at his side, goes to London. Poor blimey, governor, I'm not doing too well here. I'm off. Uh, starts to leave. Bow bells. No, no, come back, mate. Oh, the cat's gone on a ship. It's, oh, some thumb shit happened. All is well. Like, that's the plot of the pantomime. But in reality, Dick Whittington was like a super Don oligarch uh, with a conscience. I mean, the guy's legendary. Mayor of London four times, mayor of Calais once. Um, rolled through five, the reigns of five Plantagenet kings, Edward III, Richard II, Henry IV, V, VI, um, survived the revolution of 1399, uh, sold, not only sold sort of high-end cloth to uh, the kings, but traded in wine, you know, commodity trader, uh, raised finance to keep the government afloat during the Agincourt campaign, traded, you know, it was effectively a high-end bail bondsman after Agincourt trading prince, uh, prisoners' ransoms. And when he died in 1423, he left so much money to the city of London uh, for good works. There's, you know, new libraries, uh, sewers, public toilets, single mothers, refuges, uh, arms houses, so social housing. He left so much money. There's still people living in Dick Whittington houses today. In 1423, the guy, it's an extraordinary story. Now, I'm not going to the pantomime with my kids. And as soon as Whittington walks on stage, go, bollocks! What like that, mate? <laughs> Four times. At, at, uh, well, are you, oh, are you going to get to the bit about the public toilets? No, thought not. No, I'm not that guy. I let it ride, but he's in the book. You want to know more about him? You know what to do. That's it. You got. You got one of those. Oh yeah, I got a limited edition proof with, uh, and I don't know if the hardback has this. It's got sort of a foil, recessed oh, yeah, it's got, foil. Got foil. Oh yeah, that's, that's nice. That is nice. I uh, limited I know, edition proof. Two hundred, I think. Oh yeah. Big oh, dick. yeah, this is big. This is big dick shit. 
How about Dick Whittington? One one issue that you get when you get pre-release proofs is uh, because mistakes. The page. No, I like the mistakes. I think they're very charming um, because the pages charming. are likely to change. Um, none yeah. of the maps that you promised me in terms of the page numbers are easy to find. So they've all just got X's where the page marks are supposed to be. So when I wanted to skip through and just spend 10 minutes looking at some maps, I had to uh, do this. Your concern is noted and will be ignored. Okay. Well, that's a shame. But <laughs> Dan Jones, ladies and gentlemen, Powers and Thrones will be linked in the show notes below. You can go and get it from Amazon. Uh, what are you doing next? Also, actually, before we go, i got to bring this up, man. How fucking cool is it as a historian and how fortunate are we as an audience right now for the kind of environment or ecology that history's got going on? So, like, timeline world history documentaries on YouTube. I tweeted this earlier on today. That should be £20 a month. Like, that YouTube channel should be £20 a month. History hit, all of the stuff that you do. Like, there's just... It's from your side of the aisle, you know, as a creator and as a historian, is it like, fuck, this is like a, a big resurgence of, of history content and interest and it's cool and accessible and like, not say, it's, not, it's not quite it's not, sexy, but look, because <laughs> 20 years ago when I was studying, I was an undergraduate 22 years ago, um, I was taught to write by David Starkey. And so at that point, Starkey was at the absolute pinnacle of his uh, his fame, and um, he was doing he was doing six million viewers on Channel Four for his shows about Elizabeth. Six million, six million. That's a, a Trumpism. I, I need to shake. Um, that's incredible. And Sharma was on the telly doing History of Britain, like banging out millions of viewers. Like there was, there was mad money going into commissioning from certainly Channel Four, BBC, uh, and those people saying, "Oh, you know, history's kind of cool again." So, but it hasn't really tailed off from there. Like the the, the budgets in broadcasting, like from the networks, are, are through the floor now, and even the Castle Show, the five commissioned. Well, the budget for that was, I, I would. Uh, I can't remember, but let's say it was in the ballpark, maybe slightly under 200 grand an hour, which is good, decent then, but not exceptional. Well, now budgets are like, and last time I checked in about 80 grand an hour for the similar ambition of programming and your time in both the field and the edit is like nothing. So there has certainly been a drop off in uh, the ambition of network TV commissioning. And at the same time, You've seen streamers come in who will commission history and then Netflix and mostly Netflix. But if you're going to commission history on history docs type stuff on Netflix, it's got to have like Clooney doing the voiceover or um, Nick Cage in it or some shit like that. So, uh, so you know, there's not the middle of the market on the TV has fallen out. But as you correctly identify, people like the man Dan Snow doing mad stuff with history here it's, it's fantastic and there there you know there are so many broadcasters and outlets and so many people podcasting and you know bbc history extra have, have stepped into you know with a sort of nimble 
uh, approach to commissioning that the um, the, uh, the BBC, the institution, notably lacks. Um, so there is loads of uh, there are loads of channels to market. There's enormous public enthusiasm for history. There are lots of people doing it, most of whom are extremely nice and collegiate and friendly to one another. We don't really have the kind of uh, bitchy hatreds and rivalries of that Shana Starkey era. So it's like it's good times. It's really, really good times. And um, uh, I'm, I'm like blessed to be doing it. What are you doing next? You got your fiction book out as well I'm as this. History. I'm doing fiction. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I'm going to make it up. Um, I, think so. I don't know. No, I do know. I don't know about it in terms of history anymore. Uh, but I do know that I've got. So next week, assuming this, maybe it's this week. Who, maybe on it's the seventh of October. Yeah, I've got a little ghost story coming out, which I wrote on Halloween for Halloween last year. Um, and that's an original medieval ghost story written about the year fourteen hundred. It's called the Tale of. The, well, I've called it the Tale of the Tailor and the, the Tale of the Tailor and the Three Dead Kings. It's a little tiny book. Um, re- a rewritten, retold original medieval ghost story. That's that's super fun. And then I'm doing a, a historical fiction trilogy. So next autumn, the first one comes out. It's called Essex Dogs, and it's about it's the, the, all three books are set in the Hundred Years' War, and Essex Dogs is set in 3046, the Cressy campaign. The second one is set at the Siege of Calais. The third one is something else. But they take the sensibility of the sort of apocalypse now platoon full metal jacket band of brothers saving private ryan uh, to an extent but more the kind of like (coughs) hardcore war is hell late 20th century uh dystopian american hard-boiled approach to the war novel and set it in the middle ages so there's no Fucking hey, nonny, no, my liege, and under your greenwood tree, and everyone's chivalrous and uh, thinking only of their fair lady. This is like each chapter starts with a line from like Froissart or one of those sort of highfalutin chivalry is great chroniclers. And then each chapter uh, rips the idea of chivalry to bits on the ground because the reality of war for a platoon moving, you know, landing on the Normandy beaches in, uh, in July. 46 and then having to fight their way to the rivers up the rivers and across and then and then you know after seven weeks in the field fight a battle that's horrible and that's an undocumented well it's largely undocumented and but if you write against the grain of the chronicles it, it's it, you, and you couldn't do it in history I, I i don't think it would be possible to do it in history but it's super possible to do it in fiction and uh um so that's the next project uh, I have a, a deal with Sony Pictures to develop historical drama. So I'm doing that at the moment. Um, we had one on earlier this year, and there's more coming down the line, I hope. Um, I'm doing a, a shit ton of Peloton, man. I'm riding every day. Most important thing. <laughs> Extreme dabbler. <laughs> Love it. Dan Jones, ladies and gentlemen, Powers and Thrones will be linked in the show notes below. You should go and get it. And uh, watch out for Dan Jones on your Peloton chasing you down. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed that burgeoning bromance between me and Dan. 
If you want a list of 100 other books other than Powers and Thrones to read before you die, go to chriswillex.com slash books. It's a modern wisdom reading list extravaganza where you can get it for free and it's beautiful and it adds you to my three-minute Monday newsletter, chriswillex.com slash books. Also, you can get 37% or greater off everything site-wide from MyProtein, no matter where you are on the planet, in America, Australia, the UK, or even maybe in the Arctic. Not sure if they if they ship there. But go to bit.ly slash modernwisdom and use the code modernwisdom at checkout for that huge discount. And you can get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com, including their lawnmower 4.0 with the code Modern Wisdom. That's manscaped.com and Modern Wisdom at checkout. I see you next time.